Good morning, everyone. Happy Monday. This is John Halsman reporting in and around the world in 20 minutes as we continue our emergency coverage of the Israeli-Hamas war. And I promised you to I'd keep them coming. Uh, we will eventually get to back to normal and go through the culture. And the next one is on why Shaft matters. A look at the death of Richard Roundtree and the importance of the black exploitation movement of the early to mid-1970s. And that's for my son, Benjamin. Uh, but it is a very important cultural moment, and it's a chance to reassess that, which is what the culture, uh, very popular with the community, the culture podcasts uh, are about. We'll then move on to Hemingway. Uh, then we'll do our normal, usual Wednesday around the world in 20 minutes when we can again, and we'll end the week with our third, which is a reading of the book. And uh, what was I thinking as I was writing? We're up to Eisenhower. We're into the sweet spot of the book coming up where we do the modern era. We do FDR, um, we, we do Eisenhower, we do Kennedy, we do Nixon, we do Reagan, and we do our endings. So we're into the, the meat of the matter, the heart of the matter, to quote Graham Greene. Uh, but before all that, we will uh, obviously keep being interrupted by real-world events. That's what we do here. I say to the staff, it's current events, and the focus is on the first word, current. And there are two further points to make about the Israeli-Hamas war that are both very important, deeper uh, kind of structural and strategic points, and I wanted to begin your week with those in addition to the three that we gave you yesterday. Uh, the first is an incredibly unfortunate thing to say, and one of the reasons I think our call record is so good is that we're able to separate what we'd like from what is, that a lot of the problem with political risk calls comes down to wishful thinking, that you'd like the world to be a certain way, and this skews your analysis. This is a very human failing. Um, but you have to go back to Aristotle. What is, is. You don't get to wish away the world as it is. And in fact, ethical realists such as myself, the goal is to talk about, to make the world better, you have to see it as it is, as Burke said, warts and all, and then try to make it better. But that takes a great amount of bravery, because often the world isn't going to be the one that you like. And I think of my own existence that over the Iraq war, I mean, I knew that as a mid-level up-and-coming, but merely mid-level guy in Washington, that I was not going to be able to stop the coming of the Iraq war, that wave my arms as I could, that that would happen anyway, that the Bush administration, beset by some of the very neocons who are still around urging us to lump the three wars together, uh, the Nile Ferguson's, the David Frums, the Ann Applebaum's of the world, the Max Boots of the world, and I name these people because we should all be held to account. And they certainly are not. Having perpetrated the greatest geostrategic calamity of their generation, they now blithely go ahead with Nikki Haley and say, let's double down. Let's see one coherent um, anti-American axis out there when what you really have are a series of very different groups. As I said at the time, the difference was Saddam, secular socialist pan-Arab versus al-Qaeda trying to start a caliphate. And by lumping these things together, it led us to calamity, which is why we shouldn't listen to these people now. I have the incredibly revolutionary view that we should help be held to our record in Republican government. We should be held to our record. And that would preclude all these people from having anything other than rocks thrown at them. But that means that you have to see things as it is. And I knew that whatever I did, it was for me, it was a Thomas More moment. Uh, it was a Man for All Seasons moment. I, that's this week's film. Everybody go see Man for All Seasons with the wonderful Philip Schofield to know what I'm talking about. But your moral conscience in the end is what matters. There is an ethical to realism. Again, the first word is what matters, ethical. 
and I choose chose to do what's right rather than what was expedient. And like Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis, it was a high risk move, but the best thing I ever did, uh, both practically and certainly morally. Um, but I knew that the war would go on. I knew that Iran would be left the dominant power in the Gulf. I said at the time this would cost a trillion dollars. I said that by displacing the Sunni in Iraq, we would get some sort of radical movement. We got ISIS. And I knew that it didn't matter. I knew this would happen anyway. I knew I was merely saying it to say it, to be right, to do the right thing. But it never occurred to me to change my analysis because my analysis made me literally sick to my stomach as I was briefing young lieutenants who were going to be sent off to the killing fields um, of Iraq. It's something I never forgot, that as much as Anatole Levin and I, in writing Ethical Realism, were putting our necks on the line, so more were the people actually getting shot at. And that, as Anatole said, the least we can do is pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to doing better. And that's what I still do. You try to do your best all the time, but you have to see the world as it is in order to have good analysis. So point one, obviously this makes me wretched, but it needs to be said strategically. And that's that Hamas and Iran Iran have already accomplished their strategic goals. In a sense, they've already won. And what do I mean by that? Going in to the crisis, going in to the barbaric bloodbath of Hamas, uh, there was a simple strategic net closing in on Iran and to a lesser extent, um, its diminutive terrorist groups, Hezbollah and Hamas. And what was this? That people had finally accepted the Trump notion that, including some in the Biden administration, that we could get around or simply get around the Palestinian crisis, that this endless problem since 1948, since the founding of Israel, which no one has been able to solve. And it's Charlie Brown running at the football, assuming he'd get a different result when we all know Lucy's going to pull the ball away from him. And that I spent time, everybody who comes to Washington spends time on the Holy Grail, tries to be Sir Galahad, tries to go out of their way to... uh, to try to solve this insoluble problem. And I tilted at windmills for a couple of years over this, so I know the issue well. But in the end, uh, that this, this could not be a veto on the further progress of the Middle East ad infinitum, which it was. This was going on and on and on and on. And we couldn't stop everyone recognizing each other merely because the Palestinians never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, as when Yasser Arafat turned down Bill Clinton's heroic efforts at peacemaking, uh, and refused to accept yes for an answer when he was getting 90% of what he wants in the West Bank and Gaza. As Clinton put it, he chose to be popular rather than to be a statesman, rather than being Michael Collins and maybe paying the price for it like Michael Collins in Ireland. Instead, he was going to be popular and accomplish absolutely nothing, leaving his people in the state that they're in. and, and, and that rather than be bogged down by this and have a no-win situation where this was a veto over everything else, instead, the Abraham Accords put forward by the Trump people was a very clever way around it. It said, yeah, we'll continue to deal with the Palestinian issue, though none of us think it can be solved. But what we're going to do is move forward because we have co- a common enemy in Iran, a revolutionary power. And so Israel will make peace with the Arab states around it. Uh, particularly the Sunni Arab states, particularly the Gulf state monarchies um, with Saudi Arabia in the lead. And we will we will balance and, and do things together based on an anti-Iranian balancing and also on an economic issue that 
For instance, Vision 2030, the ambitious Saudi plan to move away and diversify from oil, needs a lot of investment. The Israelis have a lot of investment. You have a nice fit here to do an awful lot of work together. Saudi and Israeli unofficially already share intelligence, as everybody knows. Um, talk to each other behind the scenes a lot. But let's normalize these relations. And this process with the Abram Accord started with countries like Morocco, Sudan, Bahrain. Never would a Gulf state have made a deal. UAE. Never would a Gulf state have made a deal with, with Israel if the Saudis hadn't winked it through under Mohammed bin Salman. So this was merely formalizing what was there. But if you're Iran and you look at this, this is a knife at your heart that all your enemies, this is this is basic realism 101, um, not ethical, but Machiavellian realism. But if all your enemies gather together, that's bad, bad news for you. And to have the United States, the great Satan, broker a deal with both Israel um, and on the one hand and um, and also Saudi Arabia on the other, this was a catastrophe, a catastrophe for Iran. It also was a catastrophe for Hezbollah. And Hamas, because if you park, um, if you park the Palestinian issue, what you're saying in essence is this doesn't matter very much anymore. It's no longer the primary issue in the region, uh, which it certainly shouldn't be. Donald Trump, again, disruptor that he is, got this entirely right that we had generations of failed, honorably failed Middle East strategists in America. That as Dennis Ross, a, a, a very wise negotiator for Clinton. Um, over this issue said, we can't want peace in the region more than they do. And often this seemed to be the case. And that they were no longer going to be the primary issue. Well, this, of course, makes the cause less important to the world. That's absolutely not what Hezbollah and particularly Hamas want. And so this was a real problem. Also, it meant that they were weak. It's humiliating that we can just go right round you, that you no longer are a bottleneck on us moving forward in the region. And indeed, if the United States is going to pivot out, instead of trying to suck up to Iran, as the Biden people did, the old Trump vision of doing this is let's bolster our allies. Let, let's, leave, let's be the offshore balancer, but let's leave in place a structure with roughly Egypt, Jordan, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Israel and Turkey to an extent all keeping their eye on Iran. And then that kind of balance of power would enable the United States to do less and pivot to where the action is in the Indo-Pacific. And of course, what happened destroyed all this. The Saudis can't touch a deal with Israel because the Arab Street is out in arms. Any number of casualties would have been too many for the Arab Street, let's be clear. Um, and urban fighting is the worst kind of fighting for civilians. There's no doubt about it. And there are going to be mass casualties. And that's why social Democrats in the EU, every aid agency in the world, and the UN are freaking out because there are going to be consequences for Hamas's barbaric actions. But the Arab street, if there are 12 people killed, it would have been too many in Gaza. And there'll be many thousands killed, unfortunately. And this will make it radioactive to reach the deal with Israel. Well, this suits Iran and its minions, Hezbollah and Hamas, to the ground. They've stopped the U.S. brokering a deal between the two most powerful anti-Israeli states, Israel with the best army, and Saudi Arabia, the keeper of the holy places um, in the Islamic world and in the Middle East, and also, of course, with its immense wealth, a player in its own right, a great power in its own right. And it's kept them from coming together, and it's done that. There's no way... They keep talking about this deal will be revived, but the fighting in itself will so coarsen things that they have been successful. Iran, through Hamas's barbarity, 
and Israel's predictable blowback has stopped this deal in its tracks, which deeply threatened the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. And indeed, Western, particularly Wilsonians, are saying, well, we're going to have to deal with the Palestinian issue, which is music to the ears of Hezbollah and Hamas. So in a strategic way, they have already been successful. Um, the second point, which is very interesting, um, and is one worth watching, is again, the political developments in Washington. And I did a whole substack on why the creative Neil Ferg Niall Ferguson is wrong. That lumping these things together merely apes the, the views of the neocons who lump together the things that shouldn't be coalescing, which is at the time Al-Qaeda and Saddam, they're not trying to lump together into World War III, Taiwan, Ukraine, and um, Hamas and Israel as though these things had anything in common other than a broad anti-American orientation um, and, and that somehow they sit around like Spectre, number one, how is counterfeiting, number two, how's extortion going, number three, how's blackmail going, that there's a coherence to this that there simply is not. And they want to lump everything together because then you have to fight everywhere, every time, all at once. And to my great pleasure, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who was elected after the clown show over in the House of Representatives, we finally have a speaker, quite conservative, populist, Trumpian speaker, very well spoken, seems very bright. We've done some research into him because nobody knew who he was. I mean, this happens. Candidates emerge in the House. And... Uh, He's a bright guy uh, and, again, managed to somehow get the coalition to vote for him. Um, his first decision, I think, is a great one. He's already saying, first things first, we're going to deal with Israeli aid, and then we're going to worry about everything else. He's not lumping together, as Biden is trying to do, aid for everything. That Biden, in typical Democratic fashion, is not going to make a choice as a Wilsonian. He's going to give money to everybody. He's going to give money to everybody. And, and that, that is absolutely um, a catastrophe because we don't have it with 33 trillion in debt and the bond rate at 5% now. Uh, we don't have the money anymore or, low in, or, the, or the cushion of low and in, non-existent interest rates. Um, and we, we have to make choices and he's making a choice. Uh, Speaker Johnson is saying, we are not gonna proceed as Biden would like with this omnibus bill. And by the way, of the $106 billion that Biden want to give out in aid using the Israeli issue, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio got this right, that what Biden is doing, he put it very bluntly, but he's right, is taking the bodies of dead Israelis and he's using it to fund Ukraine because the Ukraine funding was not going through, that it was running into real difficulty. As Republicans, 71% in the most recent polling are against any further funding, no more blank checks for Ukraine, as at the moment this year, Russia's actually taken more territory in Ukraine than have the Ukrainians retaken it. So there's a stalemate at best for Ukraine. Why in the world are we giving a blank check for a stalemate when we have first order priorities, whereas Ukraine is a third order priority? And Speaker Johnson has said this, that look, the first things first, there's a major crisis right now in Israel, which is a, we have a special relationship with is one of the few primary American allies like the British, like the Anglosphere, like Japan, across the world. And we are going to give them money first. Rather than lumping it together, Biden offered $106 billion, but $60 billion of the $106 billion. And yes, in Washington, where you give the money is where your heart is, where the appropriations are is where your heart is. And it was for Ukraine, $60 billion for Ukraine, 
something like 12 to 14 billion for Israel, a couple billion for the Indo-Pacific, a little bit of money for the border to bring along Republicans. And that's supposed to be the issue. Everybody gets a little bit of money. And so everybody votes yes for this omnibus bill. This is why everyone hates Washington. It's spending extra money so nobody has to make a choice. And Speaker Johnson, and it also conflates all these crises, a la Ferguson and his neocon buddies into World War III, that we have one war, so it's all equally important. We don't have to make any choices or decisions. And so what we're going to do um, is fund everything everywhere all the time. And Speaker Johnson said, we're not going to do this. First, Israeli funding on its own, a standalone bill, and then we'll consider Ukrainian funding at all. By the way, and I'm entirely against it, but I think that Ukrainian funding probably, I don't think he'll get $60 billion, but I think that some form of Ukrainian funding will probably pass. Certainly the Senate, McConnell is a cheerleader. If anything, he's more for Ukraine, um, as, as are a number of the more establishment Republican candidates. They care more about Ukraine than they seem to care about fentanyl or the problems in the United States. Um, I think that's a safe bet, including the just departed Mike Pence, along with Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and the old, what the remnant of the establishment wing. And there are enough of them that it'll get through the Senate. Probably something will get through the House. But it's much more problematic than just lumping everything together. And Speaker Johnson, in saying we need to view these as separate crises and appropriate money for them accordingly, is doing the Republic a service right off the bat. These are separate. Lumping them together would be as catastrophic as the neocons. This is their play as lumping together things that shouldn't be put together last time, like Al-Qaeda and Saddam. The crises in Ukraine, third order priority, uh, Israel, first order but special relationship, and Taiwan, the game, the Berlin of the new Cold War. All these things should be together, uh, shouldn't be together because they are inherently different. Their interests for America are different. Their power within the region is different. Israel's powerful. Ukraine and Taiwan are not. Um, there are more differences than similarities. So lumping them together gives you this false outcome, which leads to a view of reality that simply doesn't exist. It must be comforting for the security blanket, Linus's blanket, um, for the neocons to lump all these things together. But they shouldn't be put together because they are different. And putting them together means we will fail. So... It's gloomy news that Iran and Hamas have already achieved their strategic objectives, but it's very good news in America that Speaker Johnson, seeing things as they actually are, as realists would have him do, is now trying to make them better by not lumping together things that should very much be looked at separately. Thanks very much. That's our special two further points about the Israeli-Hamas war. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will get back to normal when we can. Till then, we will keep the emergency substacks coming. Have a great week. Do remember to subscribe and please do give. We're only asking $70 to really do this round the clock um, while I try to do my day job and run our firm, which, as you might guess, is booming. This is our teachable moment, and we are embracing it. Everybody have a great week and take care.